You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Health Hub. My name is Kathy Biasse, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we'd like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex. How are you? Good morning, Kathy. I'm keeping well, and good morning to our listeners. Welcome, everybody. How are you enjoying our great spring in Ontario, Alex? <laughs> spring? Yeah. Um, I would love to say that I'm loving it right now, but uh, not so much. I feel sorry for everyone who took their snow tires off. <laughs> it was a slippery slope on the highways over the weekend. We had to take my daughter back to Laurier and the number of cars in the ditch, the ditches was, um, I don't know, I could count them not on one hand. That's for sure. Yeah, it's 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 unfortunate the fact that we've had so many um, accidents as a result of, of the weather for sure. Yeah, and the ice at Rogers Center delayed uh, or actually canceled the game yesterday. Yeah, that kind of um, tossed my uh, plans out the window. <laughs> um, or in fact, well, you can the, always go down there today and spend like eight hours at the ballpark. Oh, that would have been lovely, but uh, <laughs> I've got some some duties I have to fulfill uh, here. So I've been able to move the game at least. Uh-huh. So um, I'm looking forward to to that day whenever that comes but i've got one game coming up at the end of the month so i'm not i'm not too uh i'm not too um concerned not too upset about missing a game right now maybe it's a good thing for me well the other part about this weather is the sheets of ice flying off cars and man uh even today there are still a lot of cars that have that sheet of ice on top and flying at you like a pane of glass so you have to kind of Watch that too. Uh, you know what? By tomorrow or the next day, I'm sure all the snow will be gone. We've had more snow in April. It seems uh, a lot it's, of the whole winter. It's so true. It, oh my goodness! Just trying to shovel the driveway yesterday was. This is half. Un- it's half water. It's, it, like, it's, it's like it's like sand. Ice. It's not. It's not even. Yeah, and walking on it. I, yeah. yeah, I feel like I'm I'm walking on top, and then I sink down at one point. And, anyways, <laughs> I, uh, looking forward to it to all all being done. I was uh, shocked really shocked about it well we'll put this uh we'll have this show to put our minds at ease for sure yeah you know what my trip coming up in may is really going to seem like a winter getaway <laughs> <laughs> i don't feel bad about missing some of the nice spring so speaking of spring uh it is maple syrup season actually you know as as statistics go we're near the end of maple syrup season now it, it runs um Late February, early March till the end of April. So theoretically, we are almost through it. But it is one of um, Ontario's greatest treasures and, and, and to that end, Quebec's as well. So I thought just as a, a quick uh, a quick thing to start our show off, I would give you some fun facts about maple syrup. So as I said, maple syrup generally runs, uh, the season generally runs late February to the end of April. It takes 40 gallons of sap to make one gallon of syrup. And it takes about 40 years before a tree is big enough to be tapped. 
So if you want to be a maple syrup person, you really are making an investment in time for sure. Now, the darker syrups are made from sap later in the season. It's still made the same way, but the darker the syrup, the later in season that it has been tapped, and it is much higher in minerals. The difference between the grades of maple syrup has to do with the color. So grade A syrup is lighter in color and in flavor. And this is generally the syrup that we have on our pancakes Mm -hmm. and generally the syrup that everyone likes to eat. The flavor of the darker syrup is uh, much more robust, and oftentimes it's it's only industry used. So I like them on like it on my waffles as well. Yeah, well, the the anchamima is not the same as our tree tap maple syrup. Oh, very just true. so you know. Yes. So and you can tell by the price for sure. Um, all grades of syrup are made the same way. So it, just because it's an A and a B doesn't mean that the syrup is produced any differently. It strictly has to do with the time of the year that uh, the syrup is drawn from the tree. Maple syrup contains zinc, magnesium, calcium, potassium, iron, and manganese. So it is, uh, it is a very healthy food. Partly. It is a sugar but it is, you know, if you're going to be opting for a sweetener, maple syrup is right at the, the top of my list. Maple syrup has a glycemic index rating of 54, and pure table sugar is 65. So a vast difference in glycemic index. So bear that in mind when you're choosing your sweeteners. And the key for sap to flow is cold nights, you know, just below zero or below zero, followed by warm days above zero. And this causes the pressure to build up in the tree, which allows the sap to flow. There you go. Thank you. You're very, very welcome. And on to today's show. We have heard a lot about vitamin A, D, magnesium, calcium. We know that. We know that they are important in our, our diet, in our everyday consumption. But there is a vitamin, vitamin K2, that many of us don't know about. Many of us don't know the differences between the different types of K vitamins. And this vitamin has a magnificent and huge impact on our health. So it is something that we need to talk about and something that we need to learn about. And today we have author and naturopathic doctor, Kate Rayom. She is a graduate and former faculty member of the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine. Dr. Kate lectures internationally on many topics related to health and wellness and is a frequent guest on radio and television across North America. She is the author of the best-selling book, Vitamin K2 and the Calcium Paradox, How a Little-Known Vitamin Could Save Your Life. And we are going to find out about that vitamin. We are going to learn what vitamin K does in your body, what are the sources for vitamin K2, Can calcium supplementation be harmful for you? And many, many other things. It's a show you don't want to miss. It's important for your health. And we will be back in a few minutes. Starting right here, right now, I'm turning. Another page And I know Somehow There's gotta be A better way I don't wanna live Head down Dragging my regrets around I don't wanna miss This life Waiting on the other side To dance like 
I've tried Leaning on what I think I know I held on too tight But I'm learning to let it go I don't want to reach the end Wishing I could start again Don't want to watch the world go round If I'm gonna make it count Listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Today our show is live. If you would like to call in and talk to our guest, Dr. Kate, or to Alex and myself, our number is 416-245-1534. You can see us on social sites, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Health Hub RMC. And if you'd like to email us, our email address is thh at radiomaria.ca. Our shows are also converted into podcasts. Actually, Alex has been so on point with doing these. We're all up to date. So you can find us on all the familiar podcast sites, SoundCloud, iTunes. So lots of ways for you to keep in contact with us. Do look at our sites. We have a lot of interesting things that we put up. Now to our show. Dr. Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kathy. So glad to be here. Yeah, we're very happy to have you, too. I came across your book, um, actually, when I was actually in nutrition school, because I, I was introduced to K, vitamin K then, and then it was three different types of vitamin K, which, uh, of course, they, they name these things so closely. So I, I came across your book and started reading about it, and I was fascinated that uh, of what the vitamin K does to our bodies, and you're going to help us differentiate all that. And more fascinated that I'd never heard of it. So I was too. That's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Nobody'd heard of it. <laughs> and what put you on to this topic? Well, I discovered some early research, sort of um, by fluke, on vitamin K2, and uh, some of the earliest studies I came across were it as a cancer treatment, commonly used in Japan. And I thought, how is it that I have done all of my professional training and not heard about a vitamin like this. And uh, the more digging I did, the more I realized this was really very important for our health. 
and yet nobody was talking about it, and, and it had been largely overlooked. And so I sort of got hooked at that point and uh, uncovered lots of research about it and felt like people needed to know. So even, even in your professional training, it didn't pop up? No, exactly not. And that was a, a very surprising. So we can't feel bad ourselves, uh, the lay people, not knowing anything about this vitamin. It's, it's Nobody just... should feel bad oh, okay. <laughs> about not knowing about vitamin K2. And there's still a lot of confusion. Many people will speak to their doctors, for example, and they are not aware of the difference between K1 and K2 or even what K2 does in the body. And so it's, there's still a long way to go for raising awareness about this important nutrient. Well, probably, and, and you know what, I, I, I didn't look this up before I came to the show. My first contact um, with vitamin K, and it, it left me as soon as it happened, was my children got a shot of vitamin K uh, shortly after they were born. I don't even know if that's still being done, but I, I guess... It is, yeah, it is. and for most people, that's, that is their exposure. If they sort of rings a bell, oh, yeah, I think my kid's got a shot, or some people might say, oh, isn't that a blood clotting vitamin or possibly green leafy vegetables? That's about it, and that is vitamin K1, which is blood clotting vitamin. Yes, kids will get an injection at birth. Yes, it comes from green leafy vegetables. But vitamin K2 is very different. And the confusion between those two things meant that vitamin K2 was overlooked essentially since its discovery. And it still continues to be misunderstood, even though it's quite distinct in its role in our body. Well, why don't we differentiate between K1, K2, and I think there's even a, a different le- different types of K2, and I've also seen K3. Um, so maybe for people starting to get into this vitamin, maybe a good launching pad would be to differentiate between the three types. Mm-hmm, sure. And so there's there's you know a family of vitamins. When we talk about vitamin K, you can't just usually say vitamin K. It's sort of like saying vitamin B. There's a family. There's there's a few of them. And really the two main ones that we need to be aware of, at least, uh, are K1 and K2. There is a vitamin K3, but it's really not, it doesn't have a, a major role to play in human health. Sometimes it's used in pet food, and for the most part, it's, it's really not um, one that we need to be aware of. So the K1 and K2, vitamin K1 and K2 were discovered at the same time in the 19, late 1920s, really. And they realized that vitamin K1 played an important role in blood clotting. It came from green leafy vegetables in the diet. And it's so important for blood clotting that it can't be left to the whims of our diet. You know, you can't afford to bleed to death if you haven't eaten a salad this week, for example. So the body recycles vitamin K1. So you, a deficiency is almost impossible. It's extremely rare. And so you can more or less ignore vitamin K1. You don't need to worry about... Um, you know, getting it in your diet or eating greens regularly. Even if you eat the parsley on the side of your plate once in a while, you will have enough K1. And you, can, and you shouldn't be buying it as a supplement. You can more or less disregard it. And then researchers at the same time saw this vitamin K2 very similar looking in its structure. And they thought, meh, K1, K2, same thing. And they pretty much just disregarded it because it's so hard to be deficient. But vitamin K2 does not participate in blood clotting under normal circumstances. It does many other very important things in the body. It does not come from green leafy vegetables. It's not as easy to get in our diets, and we don't recycle it. So deficiency is, in fact, very common. As we've heard with vitamin D, deficiency of vitamin K2 is quite widespread, and you won't see problems with your blood clotting because it does different things. 
um, specifically it moves calcium around the body, and we can talk about that. But this mm-hmm. is why vitamin K2 has been overlooked. It really deserves its own name. It does, <laughs> yes, to avoid this confusion. I find with a lot of things in science, you know, give us the names of like the, the, the actual names of K1 and K2. Uh, just to tell everybody how closely these namings of these vitamins are, it can be confusing. It is. So vitamin K1, the technical name is phyloquinone. Vitamin K2 is menoquinone. But to confuse matters worse, there's CoQ10, which is ubiquinone. Uh, there's other, there's a, another of, number of quinone named nutrients that all have a similar structure and yet quite different roles in the body, and that can get confusing for people. It can get confusing, yeah, it certainly can. Yeah. Now, what foods, uh, you might as well jump in right now because we talked about how easy it is to get K1. Mm-hmm. Why, if the body needs um, this vitamin so readily, are we limited in our food sources? It just seems so different from the way nature has worked with all the other things so readily. Why is it hard for us to get this K2 into our diet? Well, it didn't used to be. And it, by nature, we should be able to get more of it in our diets. There's two main food sources of vitamin K2. One is animal foods. Now, this is a a fat-soluble vitamin, so you'll find this in, for example, egg yolks or butter, but much more so when the animals are out on grass. This is called the grass-fed vitamin. So when the cows are out on pasture or the hens are out on the pasture consuming green grass in their diet, then the butter and the egg yolks will have lots of vitamin K2. When we removed animals from the pasture and confined them more or less to grain feeding, our K2 intake took a big, big hit at that time. So that is one big factor in the decrease and the decline of our K2 intake. The second food sources of vitamin K2, which are a little more reliable because we know, of course, with grass-fed foods, that's going to vary depending on the time of year. Uh, So the second source is fermented foods. So some, but not all, bacteria can make vitamin K2, which makes some foods really, some fermented foods, really great sources of vitamin K2. So certain types of cheeses, for example, brie and gouda and Jarlsberg happen to be high in vitamin K2. In terms of plant-based foods, there is one fermented food called natto, N-A-T-T-O. It's a Japanese fermented soybean food, and that's the highest known food in vitamin K2 because the bacteria that ferment that, those soybeans make lots of vitamin K2. So really the refrigerator hasn't been our friend in this department because we consume more fresh foods and less fermented foods. Uh, but as well in North America, we don't consume a lot of fermented foods uh, to begin with. And, you know, there may be more foods out there that contain vitamin K2 that we need to do more testing, but the ones we know of right now are fairly, you know, few and far between. It's funny that um, animals being grass-fed would be a better source of vitamin K2 than animals that are being grain-fed. It 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 almost seems that eating greens has a function with this vitamin just because of that factor, or is it something else? No, well, that, exactly that. That's exactly right. So the animals are eating greens, and they can very efficiently convert the K1 in those greens to K2, and then we get that in our diet. We don't really make this conversion. There's a teeny tiny amount uh, in, in the level of the intestines that bacteria will do for us, but not enough to meet our own needs. Study after study has shown that consistently uh, vitamin K2 deficiency is widespread, and even eating more leafy greens won't change that. So we necessarily need to supplement with K2. It's 
considered to be an essential nutrient. In other words, one we have to get in through our diet, and unless you're going to eat natto or brie cheese and, and these other foods that we know of on a daily basis, then a supplement is really a very good idea. Well, this really flies in the face of many diet trends where people are staying away from meat, staying away from animal products. So it, it, it would seem that there would be more of a deficiency in the general population, I would think. Yes, very much so. I mean, particularly, and very unfortunately, among people who follow an exclusively plant-based diet, unless they're eating natto uh, on a daily, on a, not daily, but regular basis, they will be deficient in K2. And unfortunately, I do hear from people who have been, say, long-term uh, vegans and suffering with certain health problems, dental problems, heart problems, and are puzzled. And that's when they discover about this fat-soluble vitamin and end up, you know, often contacting me. So yes, if you are following a plant-based diet, there are certain supplements you need to take and vitamin K2 is one of them. So is there any symptoms of a vitamin K2 deficiency, outward symptoms before something very bad happens to your health? Very few, really, and they can be easily overlooked. I mean, typically what's going on with K2 deficiency is things on the inside. So calcium, for example, is being leached from the bones and it can be building up and depositing in soft tissues like our arteries. That's, that's very serious, and, and, they, and you're right, often has no symptoms. Sometimes you can see, you know, if people have varicose veins, that's frequently associated with K2 deficiency, or a lot of plaque building up on the teeth, tooth and gum problems, tooth sensitivity, that's one that often resolves with K2. But again, those are subtle symptoms that can be overlooked. So really not a lot of obvious you know, from the outside, like with vitamin D, you can't tell if somebody's vitamin D deficient, and yet study after study shows that it's extremely common. And how much are we supposed to get of the, if, if someone was going to go and start supplementing with vitamin K2, what is the uh, daily recommended amount? There isn't an established recommended intake for K2 per se. The clinical trials currently that are looking at bone density improvements are using around 200 micrograms of vitamin K2 per day. And the studies that are looking at reduction of calcification in arteries, for example, are, looking, are using about double that. It's about 400 micrograms per day. So those are the sort of rough numbers for managing certain health conditions. For general health maintenance for the average person, you could probably um, benefit from about 100 micrograms per day. Now, as a fat-soluble vitamin, can you overdose in K2? Oh, great question. No, as a matter of fact. That's uh, important because we have heard you can potentially overdose with the vitamins A or D because they're fat-soluble and just because of the way they act in the body. But that's not the case with vitamin K2 because its mechanism and how it acts in the body is quite different. So uh, studies have been done on this up to you know 45,000 micrograms per day and found it to be very, very safe. Not to say that more is better, but it just that it's quite non-toxic. Any drug interactions with K2? There is one drug interaction, and that is the drug warfarin. So for people on this type of blood thinner, how the blood thinner works is by creating a deficiency of vitamin K in the body. So taking in any kind of vitamin K, whether it's K1 or K2, is going to essentially counteract that drug and you won't get the benefits that you're looking for. All the other non-warfarin blood thinners, however, uh, you know, platelet inhibitors, Plavix, or the other blood thinners like Effiant, Prodaxis, or Alto Aliquis, all these work by different mechanisms, and they don't interact with K2. That's not a problem, just warfarin. 
So, okay, so if warfarin is a blood thinning uh, medication, K2 does have a little bit of influence on blood? On blood? Only when the blood has been artificially deprived of vitamin K in the case of taking okay. warfarin, then any kind of vitamin K you take in the body, the body will use for that purpose. But under normal circumstances, vitamin K2 has no effect on blood clotting whatsoever because our clotting proteins are already 100% busy with the K1. Okay. Yep. Now, we've got, we've got the lay of the land on vitamin K2, so now we can really start taking a, a deep dive into its functions in the body. So why don't you, before we hit our break in a couple of minutes, what is the calcium paradox that you're referring to in your fantastic book? Mm, well, calcium is really a double-edged sword. We absolutely need calcium in our bodies, but we need it to be in the right places, of course, in our bones and in our teeth, and we absolutely do not want it to be building up in our arteries, uh, heel spurs, kidney stones. I mean, those things aren't necessarily life-threatening the way that, for example, arterial calcification can be, but they're still not a good thing. So the body has a system to deal with this calcification problem because it's always needed to do this, but it requires vitamin K2 to make it work. And when K2 is lacking, calcium will gradually be leached from the bones and it can gradually build up in all kinds of areas in the body, including most dangerously our arteries. Oftentimes, I know the tide is changing a bit, but it was thought that cholesterol was the huge culprit in heart attacks and atherosclerosis, research is coming to the forefront that maybe over-supplementation of calcium is a bit of an issue with this as well? Definitely. So cholesterol is not a good predictor of your risk of heart attack, and it, it never has been. But what is a great predictor of your risk of heart attack is the amount of calcium that you have built up in your arteries. And so that that's important. And studies have shown that people who supplement with calcium, unfortunately, have 20 to 30% more heart attacks and strokes than people who don't because of that additional calcium in the system. Now, even for people who don't supplement with calcium, we know that this calcium buildup can lead to and is associated absolutely with heart attacks. Um, so it's a problem for everyone, but adding extra calcium to the system seems to make that worse. Okay, I think we're going to stop there with a break. Um, I've got exactly the question I want to ask you when we come back from our break. So we'll be back in a few minutes, everybody. Please uh, stay tuned, and we'll have another great half show talking about calcium and K2.
beyond our lives We will challenge cultures that do not value life We will stand united for our hope makes us one Your truth is armor and this battle will be won We rise, we rise From the darkness we will rise We rise, we rise From the darkness we will rise You are listening to The Health Hub, here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, at the break, we left talking about calcium and some of the dangers. So I think, Dr. Kate, what we should do right off the top of the second part of the show is to explain whether or not calcium supplementation, in your opinion, is dangerous. I think it is. Uh, and I don't recommend a calcium supplement for all people all the time, definitely, or all women all the time. So some people think, you know, just because you're a woman, you should take a calcium supplement. That's absolutely not the case. If you have been diagnosed with low bone density, osteopenia or osteoporosis, then there is a room, there's a place for calcium supplementation, but you don't need much. 500 milligrams per day tops from your supplement is plenty. Uh, you know, this 1,000, 1,200 milligrams, 1,500 and more, it's just the body doesn't need and can't really use all that. So if you have been diagnosed with low bone density, then, you know, absolutely some additional calcium can be helpful, but you don't need very much. It's confusing for people because it's still being touted, you know, in practice that I have. I have cancer patients who are being... Uh, you know, prescribed 2000 a day. And, you know, it's confusing for people because the, the medical profession still relies on cal- calcium supplementation as the go-to for bone health. It, it, yes, that's true. And that, those kinds of doses are based on the concept, well, if a little is good, then more must be better. And in fact, those kinds of doses have not been studied at all to, and shown to be beneficial, at, not at those high doses. And, you know, if that was true, if a little was good, then more is better, then we could cure osteoporosis by just giving high enough doses of calcium, but we know that it doesn't work that way. And yes, it's so confusing, Kathy. I have people who, who will come to see me and say, uh, you know, my osteoporosis specialist told me I shouldn't be taking a calcium supplement not to do that. And my GP said, he's crazy, you need calcium every day. Mm-hmm. So there is confusion for sure. It is. It's hard for people to know what to do. And the be- you know, your book is a great reference, and it has a lot of studies in there. So people can go to the book, pull out the studies that they need to, and really start, you know, taking your own health in your hands once you start really understanding the science behind it. And I guess just to end off the bone portion of of the importance of calcium. We should talk a little about magnesium and how that works with calcium. 
Very much so. Oh, you know, we could do a whole show on magnesium. It's a fascinating mineral, and it does so many things in the body. So for both bone health and heart health, magnesium is very important, and having adequate levels of magnesium in the body is essential for proper calcium utilization. And magnesium is a lot harder to come by in our diets than calcium, for example. Uh, Low magnesium levels means that you will not benefit from your vitamin D. There's more and more studies coming out showing that. So if you're taking vitamin D, but in fact your magnesium levels are low, you're not getting the benefits you want. And I would then say the same thing about K2. So really, although I don't recommend calcium supplements ever, pretty much, uh, I recommend magnesium supplements to just about everyone. So we've got... K2, we didn't, haven't talked about day th- D3, but we'll talk now about it. K2 works synergistically with D3, D3 synergistically with magnesium, mm-hmm. and all of them work to put calcium where they need to go. Exactly, that's right, and keep it out of the places where you don't want it going. Uh, so, yes, vitamin K2 and, and D3 work together on a number of levels. Very simply, vitamin D helps us absorb calcium. But once the calcium is absorbed, vitamin D has no control over where that calcium goes. And that's the role of vitamin K2 to make sure the calcium is getting into the right places. So that's one important way they work together. Uh, Vitamin D helps to, for example, stimulate the bone building activity in our bones, which is important. Uh, But vitamin K2 will slow down the bone breakdown process. So in that way, they can help one another. There's lots of different ways in which they complement one another. Just uh, actually a personal question. Do you prefer the pill or liquid form of the D3 and K2? Or does it matter? It it doesn't make a a huge difference. You just want to look at the doses. Some of the liquid products I find... Uh, they're good products, but actually when you look at the dose, you have to take quite a lot, and mm-hmm. it might not be the most economical format. So just you have to keep your eye on the dosage for that. Now, a good multi has a D, has calcium, magnesium, and all the other things that you want, but it doesn't have K2, generally speaking. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. K2 isn't a nutrient that's made its way into many multivitamins. There are a few on the market. If you're shopping in a good health food store, you should be able to find one. But again, as with you know, many nutrients, the, the levels in, in, uh, in a multi are, are quite low. It's, it's absolutely better than nothing, but you may just be better off getting a, a separate K2 supplement. So could you set a supplement alone with K2 or should you always do it with the D3? Actually, the clinical trials typically look at just K2 on its own. I prefer them together, and I think you'll get greater benefits because they do work synergistically on a number of levels, but the clinical work does typically just give K2 on its own and see benefits. Okay, so I want to get into some of the other areas that um, you have researched that K2 is very impactful in. Uh, I'm going to start with cancer. So can you tell us how cancer and K2 um, have a relationship? Yeah, that was, as I was saying, some of the earliest research I came across, and I was surprised by the amount of research on K2 and cancer. It's a standard treatment for cancer, a number of types of cancers in Japan, for example. It's also a standard treatment for osteoporosis in Japan. Um, but a number studies on a number of types of leukemia, breast cancer, prostate cancer. This is one that I wrote about in the book, but it has since been, there's been a few studies more coming out showing the importance for prostate cancer as well as BPH, so that's prostate enlargement. And yes, I think this is potentially very important for cancer prevention as well as management and treatment. 
Uh, I may catch you off guard with this, but if, if, you, if you don't know the answer, it's just something that I came across in some research where um, supplementing prostate cancer patients, supplementing with calcium over 1,000 um, units, almost 2,000, some, some people that I have come in contact with, that is um, not good. And, mm-hmm. and to keep it below. So have you seen studies with calcium in prostate cancer? And is this a type of, of avenue where the K2 is coming in to be beneficial? Absolutely. I, I have to admit, I haven't seen those studies in particular, but it absolutely makes a lot of sense. It, it stands to reason based on these mechanisms that that would not be a good idea, um, that we see calcification absolutely with the prostate enlargement, there's a problem with essentially varicose veins in and around the prostate, and that's a calcification problem, and, and K2 plays a role there. But in a number of other ways, calcium and prostate cancer wouldn't be a good combination. Okay, and um, cancer patients, it's frequent to have a high level of calcium um, indi- indicated in cancer patients. Does K2 help in that respect? Anywhere where you see high calcium, including surprisingly hyperparathyroid, I wasn't expecting to see benefits with that, but I, but I did. Um, anywhere you see those high calcium levels, then K2 absolutely, its role is to make sure that calcium gets in the right places in the body. And so that's important. Interesting. And you've also, I think, recently found out a connection between vitamin K2 and psoriasis? Oh, this has been so interesting. Yes, it's not something I wrote about in my book, but Since then, a number of people have contacted me. Uh, One person in particular has started a whole website devoted to this called freedomfrompsoriasis.com. And it's simply talking about, you know, her lifelong psoriasis and how it was helped with a combination of vitamin K2, D, and magnesium. Uh, Now, it turns out that when it comes to psoriasis, there is calcium building up in the skin inappropriately, and um, that could be part of the mechanism here, but it seems to be offering a wonderful relief for many people with psoriasis. And to be clear, this is an internal um, supplementation, nothing that's done topically. Yes, the K2 and D are internal. Sometimes for topical relief, they they do talk about applying magnesium topically um, for flare-ups, but it's taking the K2 and D internally, and that's seeing really big improvements. Okay. And we've come, excuse me, roundabout about talking about heart health, but maybe let's uh, double back. And for people that have heart issues or perhaps um, survivors of heart attacks, how important is it for them to get K2 into their diet? It really can't be overemphasized. It's been so overlooked, partly because of this focus on cholesterol, it being the culprit and whatnot, which it really isn't. And as I was saying, cholesterol not a great predictor of your risk of heart attack, whereas the presence of calcium in the coronary arteries, the three major arteries that feed the heart, is an excellent predictor of your risk of having a heart attack. And there are a number of mechanisms here even just when we call hardening of the arteries, this hardening is from a calcification. And K2 has been shown to restore arterial flexibility, reverse that hardening of the arteries. It's shown to lower arterial calcifications. So it's just an extremely important and overlooked nutrient for anybody concerned about their heart health. Not everybody who has high cholesterol has heart attack or heart issue. And not everybody who is who has cholesterol in, in, in quote-unquote the proper area, is immune from heart attacks. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. 50% of people who have heart attacks 
have normal cholesterol levels at the time of their heart attack and no history of ever having had high cholesterol. So you can have a heart attack even with normal cholesterol and 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 just because you have high cholesterol it doesn't mean that you um, are at high risk of having a heart attack. It, it, again, the correlation's not great. Is is the conversation starting to come around in the medical circles at all, have you found? Very little, not, not so much in the medical circles, uh, but more and more so um, among people who are looking to improve their own health or who have been prescribed cholesterol-lowering medications and are not sure they want to take it. And it is well established that cholesterol-lowering medications will lower your cholesterol, but they will not change your risk of having a first heart attack. How would somebody approach their doctor with this information? You know, they're listening to the show today. How would you suggest that they approach their their, uh, specialists? The best information I, I can give or, or way to deal with this is to go online and, and search something called numbers needed to treat. And if you type in numbers needed to treat and statin medications, for example, it will give you a very quick one-page rundown of this very information. In other words, uh, how effective the medications are at preventing heart attacks, which is not very effective at all, and the risk of side effects. And that in itself should be very compelling research. If your doctor is following an evidence-based approach, then definitely not as many people should be on the statins as are are being recommended to take them. Can you give me that website again? Um, I don't have the website off the top of my head, but if you search numbers needed to treat, it's uh, needed needed to to treat, treat. and then you can write in statin medications, for example. It will give you this very quick, straightforward rundown of this understanding of, of the real the real true benefits of these medicines. Okay, I'll put that up on the website so people can look farther into it. We had a show not too long ago on diabetes, and it is K2, again, pops up in the diabetic conversation, and how mm-hmm. is that association made? Very interesting. K2 seems to help improve our insulin sensitivity, which is really important when we're talking about type 2 diabetes. Incredibly, one of the bone-building proteins that our our bones will produce to help with bone density also has an impact on insulin sensitivity. And so we know that people with diabetes tend to be prone to osteoporosis, and this may be part of the mechanism. And vitamin K2 is potentially helpful for both conditions. Interesting. And I'll just run through all the things in your book. Now, fertility, how, how is that association uh, made? Mm-hmm. Definitely for male fertility, K2 will increase testosterone levels and sperm count. So we know that's important for male fertility. Female, we're not so sure, but it is still an important nutrient prenatally and throughout pregnancy. Okay, and then we talked about varicose uh, veins. And now on to brain health, because this is an important one. Brain health, anti-aging. They, I guess they can kind of all go under that umbrella. And mm-hmm. where is that association with the K2? Well, there's a number of uh, things here. First of all, we know that K2 is really important for preventing the damage associated with ischemia, in other words, lack of blood flow. So for people who, you know, anybody could have a stroke or a traumatic head injury or even the ultra, you know, micro mini strokes or TIAs, transient ischemic attacks, anywhere there may be a lack of blood flow, having adequate K2 levels will buffer and prevent the damage associated with that. So that in itself is important. There are a number of studies that suggest it's important for Alzheimer's prevention, and 
protection and that it plays a role in uh, protecting our brain cells on that level. We know that when K2 intake is adequate, that we do accumulate some of it in the brain, which speaks to its importance there. And I think we have a lot more research to do when it comes to K2 in the brain. Can K2, if, if we start implementing it in our diet today, can it reverse or address some of these problems? Or is this, or because it's not been in our diet to date, are we going to see as much of the benefit? I'm, I'm kind of looking back more to the osteoporosis and bone health. If we started taking K2 now, can you reverse osteopenia or osteoporosis, do you think? Or is it... Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a really good news. Like our, As I was saying, our body has this system to deal with this calcification issue, and it's just basically waiting for the K2 to come in so it can start doing that, and it will. And studies have shown that you can improve bone density moving from osteoporosis... Um, from osteopenia to normal bone density, osteoporosis to osteopenia, so just an improvement there. You can lower and reverse arterial calcifications. Uh, Yeah, the body can do this. It just needs the right nutrients. That's very good news. Very interesting Mm -hmm. for sure. So we're going out, we're going to look for a K2 supplement. You suggested taking it with a D. What would you say is the pecking order of what is important for someone who's going to go into the health food store and start start on a vitamin K2 regime? Mm-hmm. There are two types of vitamin K2 supplements available on the market. I recommend generally, especially for people in Canada, just because of the doses that we can get on, on certain types of, of nutrients, uh, to look for something called MK7. That will be somewhere in the fine print on, on the side of the label. And I like that because it's a once-daily dosing that works well at, at the doses I recommended, like two to 400 micrograms per day, depending on your, your health history. So check that somewhere on the label. If your label doesn't tell you whether you're getting what type of vitamin K or if it's K1 or K2 or you know, if it's MK7, then just don't buy it because you simply don't know what you're paying for. And that would be probably the, the most important thing. And shop at a reputable health food store where they're trained and knowledgeable about these things. Is MK7 a synthetic or is it a natural K2? It's actually considered to be a natural form of K2. It's, it's typically produced by bacterial synthesis, and it, as I said, works well in, in these low doses that I'm recommending. There's another form of K2 on the market called MK4, but you generally need higher doses of that. So here in Canada, we're restricted on our dosing, so it's limited. If you were down in the U.S., I'd say that's a good option, too, because you can get it in much higher amounts there. Funny you said that I just tried to order a supplement from the States, a D3 with K2, and they, we, I wasn't allowed to, to have it shipped here. And that may be why, because Health Canada just limits our levels of, of K2 supplements for no good reason. I mean, it's quite safe. And like I said, in the U.S., you can get it in unlimited amounts. Um, I don't know why the tight regulations. I think, again, that's due to a lack of understanding about the nutrient and what it does. Okay. Um, our gut. How is that involved with the synthesis? We talked a little bit of it, but I wanted to actually ask the pointed question. How can our gut and beneficial gut bacteria and gut health benefit the K2 uh, in our body? Well, we do make a very small amount of vitamin K2 in our intestines. Are, are the bacteria in there will do that. And so that probably is what you know, um, protects us from complete you know, frank deficiency. That's quite life-threatening. Um, but it really doesn't provide enough to meet our optimal needs, but still it's a good idea or a good reason to 
consume fermented foods, for example, and lots of fiber to keep your gut bacteria and your microbiome healthy uh, because they, they will make a little bit of K2. Interesting. So let's get right to your book. I don't think that there's a more comprehensive book out there on vitamin K2. Who is your book geared to? Is it someone for the lay people to read or is this people that are on calcium supplements or is this for professionals? Well, I did gear it towards the lay person, really anybody who is taking a calcium supplement or a vitamin D supplement or who has any of the health concerns that we were mentioning, including concerns around uh, pregnancy and, and raising children. There's lots of information there, oral, dental health. But I have had feedback from uh, medical professionals saying they really appreciate the fact that the book is well-referenced, it's all evidence-based, and that is still a, a good read for, for many different levels of readers. Well, especially because there's, there's not much known. I can imagine professionals would be very happy to get this information into their hands. And mm-hmm. where is your book? Of, how did I get a tiny book? I have the big book, but where did this little tiny book come from if someone just wanted to do a sneak peek? That little tiny booklet uh, may be available if you ask at your local health food store. They may have this this tiny free booklet on hand. I'm not sure if they're even still in print, but they might be. And if not, then you can get the book, my book on all the online booksellers there, and you can sort of read reviews and synopsis and uh, Uh, Yeah, it's available through those channels. A very good read, a very important read. Um, Let's wrap up the show with something that you can sort of bring everything together and give our listeners a tip or some guidance when it comes to K2. Well, a tip I'd like to share, as I mentioned earlier, one of the foods that we know is consistently high in vitamin K2 is brie cheese. So if you're looking for a heart-healthy snack, you can't beat brie cheese and a glass of red wine. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's a great way to end off the show. If you would like to get Dr. Kate's book, as she said, it is on any of the sites. You can go to Indigo, Chapters, Amazon, and you'll find it there. If you would like to see more and read more about her, her website is www.drkatend.com. That's correct, right? That's right. Okay, perfect. I want to thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your wealth of knowledge on such an important topic that is you know, our knowledge is, is very, very much lacking. So thank you very much for being on the show. We'll have you back to talk about magnesium because that's another important one, as you said. And thank you, uh, our listeners, for joining us today. And we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.